Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. My guest today is renowned international concert pianist David Fung. I'm your host, Jan Jaffe. Welcome to In Depth. Described as stylish and articulate in the New York Times and having superstar qualities by Le Libre, pianist David Fung is widely recognized for performances that are elegant and refined, yet intensely poetic and uncommonly expressive. Mr. Fung appears regularly with the world's premier ensembles, including the Cleveland Orchestra, Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, the Israel Symphony Orchestra, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, the National Orchestra of Belgium, the National Taiwan Symphony Orchestra, the New Japan Philharmonic Orchestra, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, the San Diego Symphony Orchestra, the San Francisco Symphony, the Tampere Philharmonic Orchestra, and with the major orchestras in Australia, including the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, and the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. In July of 2016, Mr. Fung's highly acclaimed debut with the Cleveland Orchestra at the Blossom Music Festival was, quote, everything you could wish for, unquote. That was from the Cleveland Classical. And he was further praised as an, quote, agile and alert interpreter of Mozart's crystalline note spinning, unquote. That was in The Plain Dealer. Other highlights of the season include invitations to the Louvre, the Palais des Beaux-Arts, the Kennedy Center, the Barishnikov Arts Center, and a recital tour in China at all the major venues, including the Beijing Concert Hall, the Shanghai Oriental Arts Center, the Zhuangzhou Opera House, and Tianjin Grand Theater. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing any of that. Mr. Fung will have his... Mr. Fung had his New York recital debut presented by Lincoln Center's great performers and will have his debut at Caramore later in 2016, unless you already had the Caramore debut. I'm not sure. That was last last month. So later in 2016 seems to be be very much on the way already. (laughs) Okay, yes, we're almost there. And I have to say I had the pleasure of being at that Lincoln Center recital debut. So I just also wanted to say that as a recitalist and chamber musician, Mr. Fung is a frequent guest artist at prestigious festivals and venues worldwide. Festival highlights include performances at the Aspen Music Festival, Blossom Music Festival, Edinburgh International Festival, Hong Kong Arts Festival, and Ravinia Festival. And at his Edinburgh uh, international Festival debut, the Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Guide described Mr. Fung as being impossibly virtuosic, pro- prodigiously talented, and who probably does 10 more impossible things daily before breakfast. That was a quote. So Mr. Fung garnered international attention as a winner in two of the top five international piano competitions. That was the Queen Elizabeth International Music Competition in Brussels 
and the Arthur Rubenstein Piano International Masters Competition in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, he was further distinguished by the Chamber Music and Mozart Prizes awarded in areas in which Mr. Fung has a particularly passionate interest. Mr. Fung is the first piano graduate of the Colburn Conservatory in Los Angeles and is an official Steinway artist. Um, he also, uh, from what I understand, plays harpsichord and violin. So I am extremely delighted to have a David Fung as my guest on today's show. Welcome, David. Hi, Jan. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that really lovely introduction. That was very kind of you. Um, very comprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there is a lot that you have done and an awful lot more to say about you. So the number here is 646-716-9397. We welcome your calls, questions, comments, and contribution to the discussion. We'd love to hear from you. The number again is 646-716-9397. So David... You attended James Ruth Agricultural High School in Sydney, Sydney, Australia, I'm, um, I'm, I'm guessing, where you graduated with a university's admission index of 100 and earned a scholarship to study the MBBS at the University of New South Wales. So many, if not most of us in the U.S., may not know what a university's admission index of 100 signifies, nor what an MBBS is. I'm assuming that, that what it does mean, though, is that you're extremely bright, very brilliant. But would you mind enlightening us about what all of that means? Um, well, that's, that's all correct. I, I went to an agricultural high school, um, and while... Um, it is uh, a wonderful place to, to have an education and um, especially academically and um, culturally uh, the focus um, of the school was on agriculture. So there was, um, there were lots of overalls and, um, you know, hats and, and uh, farming and hoeing in the fields and things. Uh, and I, I remember those days very fondly. It's, it's, it's actually, um, Oh, I, I look back so fondly. I was, I was meeting with a friend of mine recently in Hong Kong. Um, his name's Nick Walker. And we were just sort of reminiscing about how wonderful it was to grow up and to go to school there and how wonderful everyone was. It was so multicultural. Everyone was so um, down to earth. Um, and everyone had a thirst for knowledge and um, a, a kind of inquisitiveness about life and whatever they were doing. So I thought that was a wonderful place to be. Um, the the uh, university admissions index was actually, um, think of it as like the Australian SAT. Um, it's a, a comprehensive set of exams that um, every high schooler takes um, in year 12, and they rank people in increments of 0.05. Um, uh, and that mark allows you to uh, gain admission to um, certain universities and certain courses in those universities. So I think, um, you know, medicine um, in, in Australia is, is, uh, has been and continues to be an undergraduate degree. Of course, there are graduate level programs, but in the undergraduate program, um, it's, it's often quite competitive. And um, the admissions index um, at the time, I believe, was 99.8. So you needed to score in the 
top 0.2 uh, percentile of the cohort in order to be um, admitted. So I was very fortunate to place very high in the in the state and in the country, and it gave me a, a huge choice of whatever I wanted to study. I, um, you know, my my parents um, and relatives, a lot of um, a lot of them are in the medical field, and um, my brother actually went to the same university, uh, UNSW, studying medicine. And so I thought, it, you know, it'd be nice to follow in his footsteps. But there was a part of me that was itching away, saying, "Look, you know, you love music." Just and and it was this voice I tried to ignore, and I said, "Look, it's a hobby. I have no idea what that means to be a musician, you know, in a professional sense." Um, and my parents weren't musicians, and we we did it. Because we loved it, you know. My mom was a singer, um, and my brother and I both played violin and piano. So we we just loved to play, and it was uh, one of those things where, um, you know, uh, coming from an Asian background, it was something that was very, very different, very foreign. Um, and somehow that 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 voice, I, I just I kind of just tried to push that away, and um, and I enrolled in medical school. I received a scholarship, and I. Um, and I attended. I, I, the MDBS is actually, uh, I think it's Latin for um, Medicine Baccalaureus. So it's, it's a Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery. So I think it's, um, that's why it's the MDBS. Um, and um, yeah, that was my final choice. I, I, I recall also having, you know, full, full write offers to a lot of uh, leading law schools and so on. And it was just really overwhelming because at that age, I'm pretty sure you can't decide what you want to be. And that said, even now, I, I feel like, um, you know, when you reach a certain age, you know, your, your perspective changes, um, your interests change, um, your circle of influences and friends also change. So it's, um, it's a very dynamic thing. And even in the music world, um, being as broad as it is, to say, hey, I'm going to be a piano soloist, I would have also been equally uninformed, I think, at the age of 18. So, you know, it took a little bit of time to work out, but um, I, I think uh, I'm in a happy place now. That's yes. Well, I, I I would hope that you're in a happy place now. You play so incredibly beautifully, incredibly beautifully. Mm -hmm. I mean, Thank you. one can you don't even have to hear you play. One can watch you play and see the music. Um, it it's I it you're you're quite you're quite unique and you're quite a unique talent. Um, what I so it's so interesting that you started in medicine and of course there are there is such a correlation between medicine and music i mean there at least I, I know in this country i'm sure around the world there is there are a lot of doctors orchestras um and there is also this this the the exacting and the precision that's required in medicine and surgery um goes hand in hand with that that excellence and that that desire always to work toward perfection that we have in classical music. Um, so the right. two really are so aligned. Um, I know that being a perfectionist is often frowned upon, but in classical music and in the classical arts, it's that desire to work toward it that keeps us at that high, high, high level of, of excellence that is so important to us, that is just um, kind of part and parcel of what we are and what we do. That's right. I mean, I, I couldn't have put that um, better. I think, um, interestingly, um, 
growing up with music, it, it sort of um, forces you to have a fo- focus that um, I think um, a lot of my classmates didn't always um, have. I think being able to sit down and just play a piece or even um, practice for 30 minutes um, forces you to, to increase that attention span. Um, and I, I really think I would have been much less focused in, in everything that I um, would have done and will do if I didn't have that kind of discipline um, sitting down with a teacher and focusing on all those small details. So I think mm-hmm. it definitely, you know, music informs um, life and, and, and decision-making, but certainly the other way around as, as well. I feel really grateful to have had a very well-balanced, um, uh, you know, education and, um, you know, music wasn't the be-all and, and end-all. And I think with that perspective, I was able to really just, um, love what I was doing and bring all the experiences I had in life um, uh, to to my playing. Mm-hmm. Well, it also seems that from what you're saying, it would it, it it's as though you um, like you said you had all of these other experiences, but a much more rounded and balanced individual is behind the keys, is behind the keyboard of, of the piano, as opposed to someone who started playing uh, very, very, very early and, and did only that and often right. has no other, no other identity than that. Um, so you brought something else uh, to, to what you do and to who is behind the keyboard. So what my question then because it's it's unusual I mean so many pianists start very very early and and do nothing but that and their whole life is the sacrifice to that and just the word sacrifice you know already you know it, we start to think of slave and we start to think of something mm-hmm. sad and and um you know it, it's you're describing something different which definitely comes across anybody who has the the gift of being in the audience and seeing you not just hearing you but seeing you but also hearing you i mean it it's such an experience um the music that you produce is just incredible um so anybody that has that experience gets to to hear not a sacrifice but this incredible um life experience and and this devotion and dedication that you bring to what you do what when did you start playing um when uh, you obviously were playing you know it sounds like your family was just a musical family and a lot of us you know studied an instrument uh you know, when we were younger, but it was just sort of an addendum to what we did in life, especially those of us who valued um, academia above all else. But when did you start taking the piano or music, uh, the study of music, seriously? Um, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't think um, I was ever the kind of person that, um, was singularly geared to to, to pursuing a, you know a, a music career. Like I, I don't think I was one of those people that knew at a very early age that I would become a musician. Um, and I, I don't think my parents did either. I think it took them rather by surprise. But with um, 
I mean, I started violin when I was, um, I believe, around five going on six. I saw my brother take um, violin classes um, at the local public school in Lane Cove where we, growing, where we were growing up. And um, it was just so much fun. Like, I saw him with a fake violin, <laughs> like a tissue box, with a ruler <laughs> attached to the end. And um, he had a little placemat with um, outlines drawn in permanent marker of where his feet needed to be. And he had a bow, um, and he was just using this little tool to just get get the right position, just to have the right stance and to have the right form. And I thought it was just, I, I saw him and I was like, I want to do that. It looked like a game. <laughs> and I, <laughs> so whenever my brother was done with his stuff, I'd take his stuff and I'd just like scratch away. And it was, you know, he, he went eventually to, to a, you know, a, uh, one eighth violin and so on and one sixteenth and then I, I asked for a one sixteenth violin and I was I think I was playing at five just scr- literally scratching away and I thought it was so much fun. I can't imagine how my parents now would have dealt with that sound. <laughs> I think it must have been been um a really noisy household. But um you know I got quite good at the instrument and we, we my brother and I played duets and we did competitions and we were we were quite advanced um the violinist and um, I, I later went to piano. Um, there was there was always a piano in the house, and um, it was just um, a really natural progression for me. I really enjoyed um, just hearing the sounds the piano could make. And what was fascinating to me, I, I don't think I was able to articulate the difference at the time, but the piano sounded complete to me, whereas the violin didn't. And I realized that I needed an accompanist. You know, by the time I got to seven and I was playing piano, I was thinking, wow, um, this is so, so interesting. Like, I, I don't need to add anything to this. There's harmony, there's, there's melody, there's line, there's color. There were so many possibilities, which I felt seemed a little bit empty when I was playing concertos or, you know, the sites concertos. And eventually I remembered um, thinking, oh, gosh, like we have to pay for for uh, for an accompanist to prepare me from like, you know, Tchaikovsky concerto. That's so strange. Like, why can't I do this all myself? And um, it sort of got to the point where I was like, you know, um, completely in love with the sonority of the piano instrument. And that's, that was a very automatic departure for me. Um, and I... Yeah, I always felt as though um, that my interest in the piano um, never waned. It was just, it was a constant fascination. I didn't start very early, I think, compared to a lot of my friends. Um, you know, I, I think I must have been either seven or eight when I started. And um, by the time I was 12, I was, um, you know, making debuts, recital debuts with orchestra and, and you know, doing my advanced exams. And um, so it was, it was a very quick trajectory and I think by the time I was um, um, 15 I think I, I was taking a hiatus I was focusing on my on my school and I was just playing for fun I played a lot of chamber music with friends and um, it became just a source of enjoyment but I stopped taking lessons um, in the pre-college program pre um, pre-college program at the conservatory and it was more just um, it was more just about the enjoyment so so I, you know, in some ways, I think at 15, that formal um, focus left left me, and then it wasn't until I uh, went to university that I started taking it up again. And I called up a wonderful teacher called Margaret Hare, who um, 
who saw me through um, a, a really important um, national competition. It's probably the most important national competition. It's, it's endorsed by all of the network orchestras, so the Sydney Symphony, the Melbourne Symphony, and so on. And, um, and you know, after several rounds of competition, um, you know, I had the finals uh, for, for the keyboards with the Melbourne Symphony, and then the finals were, were the national finals with all instruments. So um, that, that's all of the winners from, from the various sections get together and play with the Sydney Symphony and it's broadcast on nat- national radio. And I won that in my first year of medical school. And that was really when I thought, um, I think I can give this a shot. Like, I mean, I, 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 was, full-time, I was a full-time enrolled student in medical school and um, I really, really was just doing this on the side. And I, and I, I felt, wow, this was really an accomplishment. I enjoyed it so very much. Um, this, this has got to be something I'm doing. And I think it was at that point that I really you know, spoke with my parents in earnest about leaving um, medical school, at least putting that on hold and seeing what possibilities there were to, um, to, to pursue music. So was this in 2002 when you won the ABC Symphony Australia Young Performer Awards and uh, then played the Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on the theme of Paganini? That's right. Indeed. <laughs> I did my research. Uh, <laughs> so that's I, I wow. So that's when you took yourself. You first took yourself seriously. Yeah, I mean, I always knew I had it. I mean, I um, gosh, I remembered my teacher sort of marveling. Oh wow, you learned Rachmaninoff Second Concerto in two weeks. Like that's 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 really wonderful. And I remember getting encouragement, and I was just thinking. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I'm sure lots of other people. I'm sure lots of other people out there are doing that too. You know, it was just one of those really weird moments where I wasn't quite able to connect the dots in terms of how how I was able to digest the music and produce the music at that age. And um, and now when I see you know at an international level in major cities around the world, especially when I'm giving master classes, you know, when when I I meet these really talented young kids, I think back and I'm like, oh, I can see why my teachers thought I was talented, but. You know, at the mm. time, um, it was kind of just, you know, in Australia, it's kind of isolating. It's, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't that YouTube was around. There was no internet. Um, gosh, right. I still remember. I still remember trying to go to the, the library and, and, um, and, like, find recordings. It was really strange, and there were, there were no good recordings. And I, I remembered my, um, my uncle's. Um, you know, from I, I had one here in the States and I had one in, in Taiwan and they were just like sending me recordings of like Yo-Yo Ma and Evgeny Kissin and Jacqueline Dupre and I didn't know who these people were. Um, mm-hmm. And now I think, you know, with the internet, you see, you see how they play and it's for right. free. You don't have to go to a library. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have something sent for you. You just, you just learn things, you know, you just absorb. And it's, um, it's such a different way of learning. But, um, you know, I think back and I, I thought it was a very interesting time uh, being in Australia and not having that that information um, and not knowing how you fit in the world, um, yeah. Absolutely, you know it's it's funny because um, I grew up in a in a similar. I didn't grow up in Australia, but where I grew up, it was sort of provincial, and I didn't grow up in a in a family with any musical, uh, you know, background. Um, and I had, I'll just say, I had a somewhat similar situation. I, I don't know, how, how old were you in 2002 when this happened for you? I was 18, barely. Okay, yeah. well, and I, I, I was 19, and I won the regional Metropolitan Opera auditions, and it wasn't until that point 
that I took myself seriously, I thought, wow, I guess I am, you know, I started, I, maybe I am good enough to start to think about having a career. You know, up until that point, I, you know, I didn't know. I mean, there were some recordings, but I just was starting to learn about who some of the big names were. And obviously, I, you know, I wasn't the same, you know, I, I, I was very young, but, right. um, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's that same sort of naivete and, and, you just, you know, until you get that outward, um, um, you know, just that, that encouragement from um, a bigger source um, that you begin to understand, wow, maybe this is something that I can do. Because sometimes right. I think those, those of us who are um, in this field and have that temperament of looking for excellence and and always seeking excellence and striving for to always improve we you know every now and then we run into people who have enormous confidence and then they don't have what it takes to back it up so we start to doubt you know we doubt ourselves well you know or do we have what it takes to back it up um and so you know and it isn't until we get maybe sometimes the support or the you know the 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 urging from a a big you know um organization such as the one that that awarded you that prize where you you say wow i guess this is something that maybe i can really do so it's it's yeah. um it's interesting how that happens at a very young age and you know it mm-hmm. it change it, it turns things around for us so, um, so that was kind of a turning point for you, then I would say, or would you say that um, that you began to see yourself and your future differently, and decided to pursue a career in music. Is that correct? Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I wanted to add something to what you mentioned. I, I think that's a really real um, concern, actually, um, for a lot of musicians and performing artists, and. And I think in general with high achievers, um, I I think it's very difficult to believe in oneself when when the way that you achieve is through constant uh, reevaluation and criticism of your own work. Um, and I think um, that mindset, like it reminds me of, I think it's called the imposter phenomenon or, or the imposter syndrome. Uh, imposter syndrome. Exactly. It's like um, that people are marked with this kind of inability to um, recognize their own um, accomplishments. Um, And I think it's because they they always feel like they're going to be um, exposed as being fraudulent or, or, you know, they always feel as though um, they're being judged. Um, And I think with music, it's one of those really, it's like the visual arts. I mean, what, what, what makes good art, what, what makes good music? And I think so much of that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and in, in, in music, the ear of the beholder. And I think um, that that's something that is very real. And I think that never goes away. And I think having um, that positive reinforcement is actually quite important. Um, but also, I think being able to recognize um, and believe in yourself and your voice, I think, is, is something that um, definitely I had no concept of um, at all, you know, in my teens, it's just, you, you play simply because you play. It's, it's such a one track, um, simple way of seeing things. And I wonder if, if that's something that, um, 
as adults, we all need to try to reclaim is this kind of naivety, this kind of joy of playing, this shedding away of all of these other complex um, and deeply um, psychological um, and Freudian kinds of um, issues that I think um, come into focus when people tell you uh, your faults, tell you your shortcomings, and they tell. I mean, it's it's like growing up is so painful because I think it's just like people are telling you um, all the things like that's unacceptable, that's not okay. And it's just, it's a really painful thing. So, um, you know, I I wonder if it's sort of like, okay, I know all this information now, but let's go back and find that inner child. Absolutely. And and one of the ways I know that that's helped me, and I think you've mentioned it too, and we'll get to it later in the conversation, but is uh, sometimes one of the ways to find that inner child is to, if, especially if you're a creative person, but is to start or take up something else that uh, is new to you. Uh, for example, maybe if you've never painted or sketched, to start doing that because then it's kind of fun, uh, it's new, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you're dealing with it and deal with it in the same way that you would as a child. You're just investigating and you're having fun. And, um, and if you can do it that way, just get yourself a set of cheap children's, uh, cheap children's art set and and investigate it and allow yourself to have fun with it the way that a child would even use finger paints or something like that and it's a way to to then start to get back in touch with that aspect of yourself and start to mm-hmm. have some fun or play you know make music with some friends and maybe make music with some friends who are not, cla- you know, classically trained. Uh, maybe with pop, with who do, who make pop music, and something mm. that's a little f- more freeing, so that you can maybe mm. um, get in touch with that aspect. I don't know. How do you feel about that, David? Mm. Um, no, I think that's really good advice. I'm going to order a, a children's painting set on Amazon right away. <laughs> Click. Okay, it's done. Um, no, I, I think you're right. You know, I um, I love the visual arts anyway. I mean, I um, I took um, art classes at Yale University throughout my time um, as a musician at the Yale School of Music, and um, it gave me such pleasure to make art and to be among um, young budding artists uh, who you know who were taking their craft very seriously and to um, go through the rigorous training of doing something completely different. I remembered there was one drawing class where between Tuesday and Thursday, we were asked to make 300, um, I think 20 second drawings. Like we had to just give ourselves 20 seconds and we had to like walk around all different places and just like draw, <laughs> like draw, draw things like very, very quickly and put it down on paper. And it was an amazing training and it made me think, well, I wonder what would what, what it would be like to actually uh, approach music in that way as an adult. Um, imagine sort of saying, just go read all this music or go listen and go recreate, go pen something, pen, pen whatever melody you'd like to paper. Don't worry about the quality, just go do it. And it's this kind of instinctual, um, instinctual uh, approach to, to the art that I think gets lost when um when you're forced to to agonize and and agonize over your 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 craft i think it's something that um has to be trained to 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 be taken back so that that gave me that one thought but i i think um yeah there is there is something about 
resetting your mind and going to something different and finding that different connection in that other area and bringing it back to your level, uh, to your area of expertise. So I think there is something very, um, yeah, that really rings true to me. And the, the, um, the great thing that I found, for example, about painting is that, you know, unless you're doing a you know performance piece where you have to paint in front of people, you know, you're doing it on your own time, and you can always go back and fix it. You can always go back and change it. It's not um, a static piece. It's not finite. Mm. It's something that can t- constantly be worked on. If it's pencil, you can erase. Um, it's 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 so forgiving. Whereas a performance is something that you do it and it's there, it's done. It's sort of hanging, you know, in whether it's been recorded, you know, either it's done and it's it's gone or it's been recorded but it is finished mm-hmm. and that's it and you can't go back and change it. Whereas um, something like a painting or a drawing can be changed. You can you can you can work on it for a while, then you can go back and work on it some more. So it's for the type for a classical musician, for for the type of musician that 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 you are, you know, doing this other kind of work has a different, you know, it 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 would be a kind of therapy almost. So it's a different way of getting into into your psyche and perhaps opening up your creative mind and maybe bringing more joy back into everything that that we do as 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 performing artists right i i see I see a lot of truth in that I think um you know I think the truest comparison I can think of in the music world with the visual arts would be a composer. I think they can certainly mm. um go back and rework every note and, and, you know, find a different passing note or a different escape tone to add expressivity. But I think what's really interesting about um, performers is there is that pressure of of, uh, performing in real time. And um, Mm -hmm. that likens them, on the one hand, to a curator in an art gallery. um, And that also likens them at the very same time to a sportsman um, who has to deliver... Uh, in real time and respond to real life situations um, and it it makes it a very challenging psychological game and I think something that I've worked on um, you know is sort of the performance psychology um, that I think sports people really understand it's sort of um, just whittling everything away and being completely single-minded on that task you're doing and it's not an easy thing to do it's so easy to think about what you want to have for lunch when you're playing you know, the piano. <laughs> Absolutely, there is, and it's, it's so interesting because, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's so interesting because the kind of coaching that I do is about performance, and it was uh, originally designed for, um, for sports uh, and for athletes, but um, I see it as directly relating as well to, to, um, to musicians and uh, artists. And um, mm. it is so much the same thing, and it's so much about how to be focused, how to keep your focus, you know, be in, right. in exactly in the moment and 100% engaged and not thinking about what you had for lunch or about that, mm-hmm. that you know, that phrase coming up that, oh, my God, I know this morning I missed that note, or, oh, my God, uh, is, my, is my finger feeling a little stiff, or, oh, my God, um, my voice is feeling, you know, a little little heavy today. Am I going to be able to get that phrase as beautifully, you know, is, is my voice? 
voice in in total in my control so that I can make the music that I want to make, that sort of thing, and so that your head is not there, so that no matter what happens, you are always in the moment and not, you know, a moment behind when maybe things didn't go the way that you would like, but so that you were 100% engaged, exactly present in the moment, so that everything, you're not ahead of time, you're there where you need to be. So, um, and it's all about the preparation ahead of time. It's exactly what you said. This performance psychology is so much a part of it. It's um, there's so much involved in in what you do, what we do as performing artists. Um, I just need to take a break right now for a moment because here on In Depth. We are so proud to have as our sponsor Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet, offering customers a new way to enhance and enrich their lives every day. Audible is the preeminent provider of spoken word audio products that include more than 100,000 audio programs from more than 1,800 content providers. Receive a free audio book with your 30-day trial when you sign up with Audible today at audible.com. Audible, books that surround you. And now, back to our show. So, mm. um, anyway, so, you know, you, you started to get into something that I really wanted to get delve into um, more deeply. But first, I want to just make sure I invite our audience again to call in. Because I I'm sure that there's somebody out there, at least uh, somebody, but I'm sure that we have listeners who would love to speak with uh, our, in, our fantastic interview guest today, concert pianist David Fung. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, David. Is that correct? It is perfect. It is, it oh, is, thank you. It, it's not, it's not thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, if you'd like to speak with our fabulous guest today, David Fung, the number is... 646-716-9397. Again, 646-716-9397. We would love to hear from you. Uh, I I'm, I'm, would not be surprised if people are a little shy. That sometimes happens. So anyway, but what I would love to talk with you about is um, you had an interest in the, um, the, uh, the intersection of music and the visual arts. Um, so, and you said you did a dissertation at Yale uh, uh, regarding this. So, would you uh, discuss some of this with us? Share some of your ideas about this with us. Um, right. So, my my thesis, um, my doctoral thesis at Yale was um, w- w- explored um, the. A micro variation um, in Morton Feldman's late works, and um, also the the uh, works of um, Roscoe and um, Anatolian rugs, and um, a lot of other 1950s abstract expressionists. And um, it was it's it's been a long term fascination of mine to see the um, the uh, you know the interdisciplinary nature of, of music. Music was never designed to be listened to in a concert hall. I think um, it's, I, I can't think of any example of that. Um, you know, in most of the common repertoire that we play, a lot of the time it was supposed to be in salons. It was supposed to be in, um, 
you know, in the in the court, or perhaps you know, Mozart wrote for Stadtpfeffer in the streets, the you know woodwind music, or he wrote operas, of course, that are nothing like that weren't received in any in any form of how we see them now at say the Met. Uh, um, you know, they were much more rowdy. They were uh, much more sort of um, probably more like a movie theater, if anything. Um, and and um, and you think about you know. Um, Music, it, it goes hand in hand with literature, it goes hand in hand with, with art, it goes hand in hand with history. Um, so many composers wrote, as artists, um, you know, painted, they, they reflected upon the time they were living in. And I think um, it's, just, it's just such a delight to find those lines um, and present uh, what you're doing in something that's fully contextual. I think it, it's um, sometimes very... Um, very easy to forget that um, a piece that you're playing has such a rich context um, in the time that it was written and also at the time the life of the composer that it was written. So it's something um, that I always try to bring to my performances. But um, my thesis focused on um, these two areas mostly because I I love the visual arts. I think um, in another life I must have been... um, a visual artist, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I joke about that with my friends, but I'm, I'm such a visual person and I like so much to, to craft images um, and, and to make images and to analyze images. So I, I thought it was a really fitting um, thing for me to, to write about uh, the intersection between these two things. And, and I love modern art, so I, I was really hoping to find music that I loved and art that I, I loved and sort of just, you know, uh, weave it together. And I, and I thought I did that. Um, in a way that was was interesting and, and engaging, at least for me. <laughs> well, that sounds so fascinating, um, and it would be, I think, to to uh, to work on something like that um, where that that happens together. I don't know if you've done that. Have Have you done that where um, you've played with? With uh, with some artists that were creating music and creating art at the same time that that uh, you were playing absolutely. or that you played uh, in response to art that was being created. Absolutely, there were there was a time where there was a series at the uh, New South Wales Art Gallery, and it was a Sunday series, and um, concerts were created um, to match the exhibitions. Um, uh, that were being shown at the time, and I took part in that. And um, you know, I think most recently there were some projects uh, with the wonderful composer Christopher Theophanidis. Um, he wrote some works uh, to be paired with T.S. Eliot's um, poetry, and it was just a really beautiful. Um, it was a it was a beautiful project um, at, at the Yale School, and. Uh, there was a wonderful artist um, also that contributed works um, called uh, Fujimura, who um, had beautiful, opulent, large canvas works that were were um, multi, sort of a multi-layered uh, and multi-dimensional. And he used a lot of really beautiful minerals and um, and uh, beautiful crushed stone in, in his in his uh, painting. And it was just a, a true sort of um, collaboration between three very different art forms. Um, 
so that was really, really enjoyable. Um, I, I, I'm thinking of the time where I gave a Feldman recital where I paired it with um, um, a, a lighting designer where um, the whole room was dark and it was this three-hour work where you just sort of, I just play very quietly and um, and and it was basically just people could, could come and go and they could experience this kind of... Um, it felt like a cocoon. I think it was sort of like a um, cozy, cozy place where you could really just feel the music. Um, yeah, I mean, it was. It, there are lots of sort of different things that I've done, which I think uh, were really interesting. But I'm I'm always thinking of ways of doing that with music. Um, that that is sort of before that time. You know, we're looking at perhaps. You know, what can we do to to make interesting ways of experiencing Mozart again, um, but perhaps in a, in a different, different way, like staging that in a different way, bringing that to the audience in a different sensorial way. So that's something that I'm, I'm always thinking about. Mm, that sounds so delightful, and it brings so many different ideas to mind. It really does. Um, I, I have, you know, we're, getting, we're starting to get short on time, and I still have so many questions, so I'm going to just throw some questions at you, um, and maybe we can, you don't have to give me huge answers, but I'm just, I'm curious. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, um, do you ever uh, play violin or harpsichord in performance uh, at all or anymore? I do. Um, I, I don't play violin very much anymore. I think it was kind of fun. Um, I played a violin encore um, at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art playing with the Israel Chamber Orchestra. Um, I came out and I played um, Strauss Morgan on the violin. Oh, uh, with, oh that's so gorgeous. With, uh, a friend of mine, with a friend of mine, Yolom Son, um, playing the piano. Um, we had both played the Mozart to piano concerto with the orchestra and we just on the on the moment we were just like, let's just do that and then it was really fun. Um mm, mm, but, mm. but it's not something that I do very often anymore and I'm definitely very rusty. I'm sure all of my violinist friends would laugh at me if they heard me play. Um and I, I still play harpsichord regularly. It's um mm-hmm. you know I was a member of the Yale Baroque Ensemble and I play harpsichord and chamber organ, and I continue. I, I love playing on forte piano. I recently played a recital on forte piano of of uh, Mozart's work, so it was um, it was really a lot of fun. Um, so oh, to, wonderful! Sort of, to, to vary things, not just to to stay with the instrument, modern piano that I love so much. Um, even now, I think the pianos are changing. There's always new technology um, mm-hmm. that makes things easier and better. Okay, um, so. Uh, now next and and what is do you have a favorite genre of music it sounds um, like you're so you're so mixed on on you love yeah, so many things <laughs> well i i think i could say that i love um the first Viennese school and that's something that i definitely um i have a, a great joy of playing schubert mozart beethoven i'm really crazy about schubert um mm. and of course from um from the romantic period, there's really nothing not to like. I think that's the the kind of music that young musicians naturally gravitate to because it is so overtly expressive um, and so enjoyable to play. Um, and it's it's just you know I, I think a lot of people really enjoy the Brahms and the Chopin and Schumann. But you know in terms of 
uh, music that I really like to advocate is, is new music. I think uh, it's important to understand that we, we, we're living in a time that we should be supporting new creations. I think uh, more than ever now, you know, without um, huge sources of funding and without the aristocracy that, you know, supported composers like Beethoven and Haydn, uh, these masterworks aren't being created because there isn't the, the environment and the, and the financial support. And I, I always am mindful of playing works of new, of, of new works of composers, of living composers. And I just commissioned um, a friend of mine, Sam Adams, uh, who was the son of John Adams, to, to write some works um, for the recital that you attended at Lincoln Center. And mm-hmm. there are a couple of new commissions in the works um, too. And I think it's just really important to... Um, to be playing things that are written now. I mean, I, I think music has a trajectory as does everything else. And if that stops, um, you know, I think the concert hall becomes an art gallery, um, not a, a place for dialogue, for, for things that are happening now, for people to respond to and to, to, to critique in their own ways. And I think that that's very, very important. You know, the fact that the audience can have such a response to the Rite of Spring when it was written uh, is know, a testament um, to the idea. Yeah, we just we true. have a, a a caller um oh, oh, just now calling in from I believe it's Chicago. Uh, I'm going to bring them in. Uh caller, your number ends in six seven oh one. Hello? Hello. Are you there? Yes, hello. I sh- yes, I sure am. Uh and I'm enjoying the show very much. I have a question that without getting too much into his own method of practicing and preparing a piece of music. Earlier in the conversation, you were talking about listening to recordings. And uh, I, it, it came into my mind, at, do you, a lot of people learn their pieces before they actually listen to anyone and then just basically uh, listen to compare how do you how do you avoid the idea of comparison against imitating an, another artist mm-hmm. that's a really good question um and i think it's a complicated one because i think i'd have to answer it in, in a couple of uh different ways but i think the first thing to to say is you know um for professional performers out there, um, I, I, I don't think there would be anyone who isn't aware of what their peers are doing or, you know, what, uh, what sort of um, well-known recordings um, and famous recordings of that work um, that they would be working on. You know, I think they would be fully aware of all of that um, tradition and, um, and they would probably be aware of, um, you know, what people might be doing today. And then, of course, they would be really adding their own voice, either um, by comparing or perhaps in some time, at some point sort of saying, well, wow, that was a really interesting structural pause. Maybe I need to be thinking about that in my own performance. So I, I think, um, you know, there's that. Um, and I think that's just, um, that's very good um, sort of um, research and study for, for the work that you're, 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 you're working on. But I think there's a certain age of um, musician and uh, there's a certain part of, in my in my mind, this is a very personal answer. Um, you know, I think um, there's a certain period in the in the development of a young musician's life where I would I would perhaps discourage listening to um, 
music and if, if anything I would sort of say hey let's listen to this recording together and let's discuss what we like and what we don't like and and the reasons why I think it's um it, it's very easy um for young um musicians to to really imitate without considering all of the different aspects of um what's at play in terms of making that musical decision and with music every decision influences the next or every nuance influences the next um, in such a huge way that um, if you don't understand, you know, the concept of proportion or an artistic choice um, and the sort of first principles behind it, I think it's very easy to um, uh, come across as being very imitative because it doesn't sound organic. So that leads me to the next way I would answer the question, which is to do with um, how you know, make, making an idea your own. I think there is this idea that as a musician, you have to incorporate a lot of different musical vocabulary. So for instance, how do you interpret arrest in Mozart versus Beethoven versus Chopin and versus, um, you know, uh, Morton Feldman? I think um, that takes a, a huge amount of study, but, you know, understanding how to make a crescendo and then do a subito piano in Beethoven is very unique to that composer, which requires a lot of... Um, you know, I think it requires a lot of practice and and a lot of um, uh, study of of that tradition. So, um, you know, in terms of in terms of that, I, I would encourage every musician to to expand um, their musical vocabulary so that they have that at their disposal in concert when they need it. Um, and I think that that comes with good practice, good preparation, and certainly um, listening to recordings. So, um, I, I I don't know if that answers the question. Um, and feel free to ask a sec- secondary question if, if if something I've said has prompted um, um, another idea. No, I think that that answers the question, and uh, I appreciate what you have said. Uh, the one thing that I'm not quite understanding is, in for instance, in your when you do your master classes, you're a very young man, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, what? How do you? Uh, deal with well let me place let me phrase it in a different way. You said it depends on the edge of the musician uh whether you would say uh to to listen to certain things. How do you caution in your own master classes that uh perhaps they should listen to something only to learn just like you said there's a big difference between doing a Beethoven piece as opposed to a list piece. Is this kind mm. of like what you what you would be trying to 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 bring up in your master classes? And uh, is your age at all any problem with? Uh, you probably have master classes of people who are not much much younger than you are. <laughs> uh, that has happened before. I've I've um I've taught. Um, gosh, I'm, I think I had a master class where I think I had someone who was older than me a few years back and uh, it was just one of those awkward things where you sort of like well let's have a conversation about the music and um certainly i think you have to you have to see every single person is different and the way in which you speak to them the way in which you address them the way in which you um, explore topics with them um are so different and i think it's just really about reading um that person and seeing what they need i think if there's Mm. a young player that can't distinguish um the difference between a Sforzando and Beethoven and in Mozart, I would illustrate that to them. I would show them myself in that in that masterclass period what 
that might sound like. And um, mm-hmm. and then I could suggest them to, to listen to Aral and some of the classic recordings of Beethoven. And sure enough, they would be able to hear that um, sort of irrefutably, um, you know, this continuous succession of Sforzandi, for instance, in Beethoven implies a crescendo. And that's not written in the music. That's just from understanding, you know, from listening to... Um, I mean, you can listen to any any orchestral, these great, great orchestral recordings, and you will hear that in the symphonies. You'll hear that in the sonatas, um, you know, by Arau or um, by any of these older great artists. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I could suggest that, but um, usually, um, you know, I, I avoid um, giving people too much homework away from a masterclass because I think, mm. um, you know, if I don't have a follow-up session with, with someone, I think it could be very easily misconstrued. So I, I am careful about that. But with certainly with with someone I'm working with on a regular basis, I definitely um, you know point them to recordings and mm-hmm, and point them mm-hmm. to interesting um, interesting observations that I think that they mm-hmm. could infer from those recordings. Of course, I think that you have answered uh, the questions. What I thought you were going to kind of say to me. Thank you. Yes, thank you so very, very much for your call. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, I just, I'm just wondering. I mean, we're getting, my gosh, we're getting so close to the very end of the show, and I just wanted to know. I had more questions, but you know, I could, I could talk with you forever, David. There's just, you're so fascinating, (laughs) and. Thank you. The, the time has just gone by so quickly. Um, I, I'm just wondering, if you were to, to find a bottle with a genie inside it to grant you several wishes, what might they be? Oh, my goodness. I, this is one of those really <laughs> questions that I'm terrible at answering. I'm such a realist. I'm so literal. What would I ask for? Um, I really, if I had a genie in a bottle, I would um, ask that um, everyone would love one another and um, live with integrity and um, true care for ourselves, um, for each other, and for the planet. That we we try to make a difference in every way that we know how. That's probably what I would ask for. <laughs> I can't think of that anything is, else. That is really lovely, know. and you know what? I'm not at all surprised. I that just sort of that that just goes in line with with uh, with the person that you appear to be and the artist that I know that you are. So thank you so much. And we're, you know, we're about at the end of our show. And I'm, you know, I also, I'm sorry if I threw that question at you, but I just, I was just, I was just curious to hear what you might say. Well, I just wanted to add, I think we're all living on certain times. I think we're all living in a time where um, there is just so much cognitive dissonance going on upstairs. And I think, I'm speaking probably on behalf of everyone, but certainly for me, I, I'm so much aware of the cultural climate and, and geopolitics and um, and just, you know, even being an Asian man um, who is Australian living in New York City, I mean, that is such a huge cultural shock if you could possibly ever imagine. And mm. um, you'd think that it wouldn't be, but um, I just wanted to say that, you know, it's these considerations, this idea of, of respect and of, of coming together. I think that's sort of something that's very much on my mind. So, yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, it's true. A lot of Americans who have never lived anywhere else don't understand um, the challenge of living somewhere else, and especially everything that you've mentioned, um, especially in these days, it it, it has to be uh, a great challenge. So um, I I thank you so much, so very much for being on the show today. We're just we're about at the end of the show, about at the top of the hour. So I so want to thank my guest David Fung for being on the show today. I'm Jan Jaffe, and it has been my privilege to have been your host today. In addition to my solo interview show, I also host Think Tank, a round table, very geeky, fabulous discussion show. Mm -hmm. And I would be delighted if you would join us for the next episode of Think Tank on December 21st at 12 noon Eastern. David, would you care to share any closing thoughts, advice, comments, upcoming concerts or website information with our listening audience? Well, please check out um, my website at davidfung.com. Um, you can see upcoming performances there. I'd love to see you at one of the, the upcoming performances. Um, I also want to invite everyone to like my page on Facebook um, because that's where I, um, I like to up- upload my information. I don't send out emails that um, bug people to come to concerts. Not that, that that's always a bad thing. <laughs> I like emails. <laughs> Okay, so everybody, that's David Fung, D, or David, D-A-V-I-D, but it's Fung is F-U-N-G on Facebook. Right. So go to his page and like his page, and you can get more information there. Um, I will certainly – well, I'm already on your page, so <laughs> – but uh, everybody, go do that. And um, I just want to let you know again, David, it's just been such a treat having you with us today. Thank you so much. And I want to remind everyone that you can find contact and bio information for both of us in today's show description on the show page. So thanks again to my wonderful guest, David Fung, for joining me today and making this show a very, very special one. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye.